Now, friends, we come to the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and we've come now to a new section, and it's concerning spiritual gifts. That's from 12 through 14. And we have here in chapter 12 the endowment of gifts. In chapter 13, the energy of gifts. And in chapter 14, the exercise of gifts. Now, he's going to use the human body as the classic illustration of this. We've come, actually, to a major division in 1 Corinthians. You will not discover it in my notes for the very simple reason that I have a different ladder on which I've divided the book. But fundamentally and basically... 1 Corinthians divides itself into two major divisions. The first section has to do with carnalities, and the second section has to do with spiritualities. Now, we want to see that. So we come here in this first section now. The gifts are given to maintain unity in diversity. Now, that's in 12th chapter, the first 11 verses. I'm reading verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant. Now, if you'll notice in your text that the word gifts is in italics, that means that it actually is not in the original. That was added for the sake of clarity. But very frankly, I don't think that putting spiritual gifts here really clarifies anything. It rather confuses. And you will notice that the Revised Standard Version, which we don't always recognize, we have spiritual gifts there. And in the New English Bible, it's gifts of the Spirit. In the Berkeley translation, it's spiritual endowments. And then you'll find a good note on it in the Schofield Reference Bible. Now, actually, the word in the Greek is pneumakon, spiritualities. And you don't need to supply gifts. And it's in contrast to the carnalities. You'll recall back over in the third chapter, Paul said when he was discussing with them the divisions among them and all these other things, he says, and I, brethren could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. So he's speaking to them in the beginning, answering their questions, and it concerns carnalities, that things that carnal Christians would be interested in. So that what you have in that first section is carnalities. In this second section, beginning here at chapter 12, you have spiritualities. And I feel that Paul is just heaving a sigh of relief when he gets here to chapter 12. And the reason is, Paul was perfectly willing to discuss these other things, but he wanted to talk to them about the spiritualities. Now, the carnalities had to do with their divisions, their wranglings about different persons, about adultery, going to court against brethren, the sex problem, women's dress, men's haircuts, the meal offering, 
and gluttony at the Lord's Supper and drunkenness. That's all carnalities. But if you'll notice, that's where the church is today. Church is connected with that. But now we come to the spiritualities, and he's going to discuss them. Now, in the first section, it's corrective. Here in this section, it's constructive. And Paul was glad to change the subject. And I think today the church needs to get off of the thing that it seems to be going around a circle in, these things today. The question, you know, is always asked in a very sophisticated manner. We feel like we should tell our young people about sex. You better tell them about the spiritual things, friends. They'll find out about the other. I can assure you that. And the spiritualities. And so we've got today in our churches running a program that keeps young people about four miles away from the Bible. They never get there. It's always hipped on these different things that are popular for the moment, fads, as it were. Now, that is a sign of carnality. Now, when we come to this section, the three subjects, actually, that he'll discuss, one is the unifying spirit, the other is the law of love, and then the resurrection, the triumph that the believer has in the resurrection. Now, the gifts, by the way, just happen to be one of the spiritualities. And so let's move down into this area here, and let's look at this for just a moment or two. Now, we notice here in verse 2, and I'm reading, "...ye know that ye were Gentiles carried away under these dumb idols, even as ye were led." Now, the idols were voiceless. They had no voice at all. They were dumb. And Paul calls them in other places, nothings. Idols are nothings. The idol, Paul said, you remember, relative to things offered to idol, meat offered to idol. Why, well, he says the idol is nothing. Therefore, it wouldn't make any difference whether the meat had been offered to it or not. But Everyone doesn't quite understand that. And back in Psalms 115.5, the psalmist says, speaking of idols, they have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. And uh, Habakkuk in 2.18 says, What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it? The molten image and the teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols. The very interesting thing is that he's going now to talk about the gifts that the living God gives to believers. Now, will you notice, here he states at verse 3, the great truth, it's the absolute verity of the Christian life. And you know what it is? It's the lordship of Jesus. He says here in verse 3, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. You can't belittle Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. It won't work. 
And by the same token, he says, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. Oh, he can pronounce the word. He can say Lord. In fact, the Lord Jesus said, you remember that in that day there'd be many that would say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out demons? Why, he said, I didn't even know you. Why? Because it was all on the surface. The Lord Jesus was not the Lord. Now, this is a conviction of the soul. What is the central truth of the Christian faith? There are those that say, why, it's the cross of Christ. I want to say that I rather disagree with that. You come to the cross to be saved. But you don't stay there. You don't hang around an empty cross. You have to do then with the living Christ. And that is the thing that I think that is all important. The thing that Simon Peter said on the day of Pentecost, and he concluded his message with this tremendous statement, and this is it. Verse 36 of Acts 2, Therefore... Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. He's the Lord. And it's the sovereignty of Jesus Christ today. That's the important thing in the Christian life. Now, the Holy Spirit commands the soul's obedience and allegiance to Jesus. And the church is made up of those who are gathered around that truth as interpreted by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit interprets the lordship of Jesus to my life. And this is the great section on the church, by the way, that we're dealing with right now. And yet there have been so many tangents that people have gone off on. Somebody says, well, I thought Ephesians was the great epistle. Well, it is, but Paul now is moving into spiritualities here. And the great question always that he asks, Whom say ye that I am? Right now, wherever you are, you may be that plumber way down in Georgia. You may be in that truck. You may be a truck driver. You may be in an office. You may be in your home. You may be an executive. Like up in San Francisco, this man that when he tapes it so that if he's not able to hear it during the day, at night, it's his devotion. Now, whoever you are, wherever you are, and however you are, and whenever you are, whom say ye that I am? That's the question Jesus is asking you, and he's asking me. Simon Peter, speaking for that group, says, Thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. You are the anointed one. You are the King. You are the Lord. That's it. Now, no man is fit to serve Christ's church who's not been mastered by Jesus Christ. Now, we've seen that before in this epistle. Back in the carnalities, he emphasizes that. Now, he emphasizes that again. Now you have the unifying work of the Holy Spirit 
today in the church, and it's to reveal the lordship of Jesus to believers. Now, will you notice how he does that? Verse 4, now there are diversities of gifts. That is, there are distributions of gifts. Now, in order to get the unity, why, he gives different gifts to individuals. And here, the word gifts is the charismaton. And today, this movement of tongues has come up among the intelligentsia and the sophisticates today, and they call it the charismatic movement. May I say that that reveals a terrible ignorance. Charismaton means gifts. It doesn't refer to tongues definitely at all. It refers to all the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the church, to the believers in the church. Now, there are distributions of gifts, but it's the same Spirit that does it. And there are differences of ministrations, but the same Lord. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is ministrations. It doesn't make any difference about what gift you may have. The Lord Jesus is the one that is using it, and using it for his glory, by the way. Now, will you notice here the next thing he says, and there are diversities of operations, that is, of the energy, but it's the same God which worketh in all. And he is the one that works in the believer. And now that brings me to notice this. One God, but he's a trinity. But they work together. There's a unity. There is a diversity in unity. Well, you notice this. The Holy Spirit bestows the gifts. The Lord Jesus Christ as ministers the gifts under his direction. And the Father, God, supplies the power and he energizes the gift. And all of this is for one purpose, and that is to exalt the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, I recognize that I'm moving in an area where these today that have emphasized this chapter and chapter 14 just haven't moved at all, and I wish they would. Now, will you notice, he says here, verse 7, "...but the manifestation of the Spirit..." is given to every man to profit with all. Now, I first of all would like to define a gift. What is a gift? Well, it's a capacity for service. It's a function. And if I may now give the definition of another, here is the definition of a gift. A gift, in the spiritual sense, means the Holy Spirit doing a particular service through the believer and using the believer to do it. And I would like to add to that that it must be done in the power of the Spirit of God. I'm nothing. I have nothing. I am no use to God or man. And that's a fact. That's not a pious platitude. But he gave me a gift, and I'm to exercise that gift and that is, I believe, the only way that the Spirit of God will manifest himself in my life. And I think that we need to 
recognize that today. It's important. What is the definition now of a gift? Listen to the Word of God, verse 7 again. But the manifestation of the Spirit, that's what a gift is. It is a manifestation of the Spirit. Now, it does not mean necessarily the exercise of a natural gift. This man has a gift of singing, or this woman, and she has a marvelous voice, and she sings. But if she doesn't sing in the power of the Holy Spirit, may I say that God can't use it and doesn't use it. Now, that's the reason that today music in the church has reached such a low level, is simply because you've got musicians that think all you need is talent, that is, the ability to sing and read music. And if you can do that, you've just got it made, and the Lord can't get along without you. You get along without you. He doesn't need that. And I've been in this long enough. I've been all the way across this country in many, many places, ministered many places. And I can tell, I've learned over the years, I can tell when a musician is really adding to the service or detracting from it. And I've actually had a solo that right before the message, it's absolutely ruined the message. It shot the message down before I even stood on my feet. fact, the matter is, I felt like getting up and pronouncing the benediction and going home. May I say to you, unless it's the exercise of the Holy Spirit through the believer, it's nothing. The talent is worth something, of course. And I think the Holy Spirit uses the natural ability of a believer. That is, if the believer let him do it. Now, there are those that have no particular natural gift. They can't sing. They can't speak. I've heard many people say, well, I can't do anything. And a great many people think, well, just because I can't sing, because I can't teach a Sunday school class or I can't preach, then there's nothing for me to do but sit in the pew And that has been the most tragic mistake the church has made, is to say, go sit in the pew and listen to me. That is tragic indeed. Now, I'm going to make another very startling statement here from this verse. And that is, every believer has a gift. Every believer. You have a gift. And we're going to see next time, this is likened unto the body. And there are many members in the body. So there are many gifts. You have a gift. Listen to this. Verse 7 again. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man, every Christian man. And the word man is the generic term. Anthropos means man or woman, boy or girl. Doesn't make any difference who you are. If you're a child of God, you have a gift. You've been put in the body of believers as a member of the body and to function as a member of the body of Christ. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. What's the purpose of the gift? It's to build up the church. It is to build up the body of believers. It's not to be exercised selfishly, but it's to build up the body of believers. This is a tremendous verse, you see that we're looking at here. Now, he's going to name here some of the gifts, not all of them, because you'll find them elsewhere also. Now, he says here, and he only mentions a few gifts, for to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, 
to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. And wisdom means insight into truth. I do not think everyone can understand the Bible. That's the reason we all need teachers, because of the fact that not everyone has the gift. Wisdom is insight into the truth of the Word of God. Now, knowledge means to investigate, to dig into truth. Now, a great many people do not have time to dig into the Word of God and dig out the nuggets. One man who supports our program very generously says, I'm just paying you for the nuggets that you deliver to me. And he says he's a businessman, he's an executive, and he said that he doesn't have time. And he doesn't. I don't think God's asking him to. And so that's my gift if I have one at all. So I'm doing the digging for him. And he's supporting a program. And that's the way we're partners together, exercising gifts, you see. I think this thing's very practical. Now he says to another, verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit. Faith, we're told in Scriptures, the substance of things hoped for. Now that's a gift that some people have. I personally, because of the fact I have a little Scotch blood in me, and I know that I'm going to get a letter from some good Scotchman, and he's going to say to me, Scotch is a whiskey, and you say you've got a little Scotch in you. Well, may I say to you, it's not whiskey, I can assure you that. But I have a little Scotch, and I have a little German. And boy, when you get that combination, it's bad. You're a pessimist. I was born a pessimist. And I look at everything from that viewpoint. In every church I've served, God has given me always several people who have the gift of faith. I've had many a time an officer come put his arm around my shoulder and say, Look, preacher, this thing's going to work. This thing is going to come through all right. And you know it did. <laughs> he had the faith. I didn't. And to another faith by the same Spirit. To another the gifts of healing. And that means to lay hands and the sick are healed. Now, I believe that that was, as we shall see later, a gift that was given to the apostles and men in that early period. Now, I don't think that gift is needed today. I think the thing that we are to do today is to take it to the great physician directly, not to a man or a woman down here. Take your case to the great physician. And my friend, it's a lack of faith not to do that, to take it to an individual. Because to lay hands on the sick, the Lord Jesus did that when they didn't have much faith. But you remember, that centurion came and says, my servant. The Lord Jesus said, he's healed. And he didn't even go look at the fellow, and he was healed. Now, he didn't need to do that because he said, I've never found such faith, no, not in Israel. This man was outstanding. So today, take your case to the great physician. I believe in divine healing, but I think you've got to go to him with your case, by the way. Now, we're going to see there's certain gifts that are peculiar for different ages. I think the gift that Martin Luther had is not needed today, and the gifts that we have today, he didn't need those. I think the Spirit of God gives gifts that the body of Christ might profit, might function in the age it finds itself. We'll see that as we go along. Now you'll notice here that he goes on to say, verse 10, to another work in a miracles. Now that's to do supernatural things. That was in the apostolic age. 
But I think today we're seeing greater things. The Lord Jesus says, greater things than these shall ye see. Now, when he was here and he spoke a word, and a person is converted like the woman at the well and like Nicodemus, I don't marvel at that. But when I speak it or you speak it and somebody's saved, that's a greater work. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. Now, prophecy means to declare the will of Christ. That is the word of God. Preach the word, Paul says to young preacher. And that's what we need to do today. And then trust the Spirit of God to use it. To another, a discerning of spirits. That is to distinguish between the false and the true. And I'm convinced I do not have that gift at all. I've been taken in more than any preacher's ever been taken in by individuals. I've trusted certain men. I thought they were genuine. I have certain officers, certain preachers. And my, they've let me down horrible. I've been deceived by them and found that they were liars and that they were dishonest. And I thought they were wonderful. And you do find people with discerning spirit. Now, I don't want this word to get out, but, but my wife is a great help to me in that connection. She tells me, well, you be careful there. Be careful about this individual, or I think this one is a very wonderful person. Well, she's generally right, and I'm generally wrong. Discerning of spirits. Now, will you notice? And another, divers kinds of tongues. Now, divers is not there. Kinds of tongues. What are kinds of tongues? Unknown? No. You don't find that in the Scripture. These are tongues that are spoken. My friend, without trying to invent an unknown tongue today, there's enough tongues that are left that we need to get the gospel in. They ought not to waste our time going la, 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 and ba, ba, ba. Let the sheep go ba, ba, and let us try to get the Word of God into one of these languages today. That's the important thing, and that's what he's talking about here. Now, verse 11, "...but all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit..." dividing to every man severally as he will. Now, the Holy Spirit is sovereign in this. But I do think that we have a right to covet or pray for the best gifts. And that's what he's going to tell these Corinthians. They're all on a very low level, and he's trying to get them up to a spiritual level. And to get away from, they were all hipped on the tongues movement, and that was their hang-up, and... That's exactly why this section is here. You see, he's correcting things that are wrong in the Corinthian church. And that church was wrong, friends, regardless of what you might think. That church was very far off. Now notice, he makes it clear again, for as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Now, notice that, and notice verse 20. Now, drop down to it. But now are they many members, yet one body. Many members in the body of Christ. And then notice again, verse 27. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Now, he uses here a comparison to the human body. One body but many members, one Holy Spirit, giving different gifts to individuals. Now, the human body has many members. He says that 
In verse 12 again, "...for as the body is one, hath many members." Notice verse 14, "...for the body is not one member, but many." And then again, I go to verse 27, "...now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular." Now, the human body has many members, hundreds of members, thousands of members. Now, in the church, the body of Christ, there are many gifts. There are hundreds, probably thousands. Now, the human body, it has bones and muscles and tissues and glands and organs and nerves and blood vessels. I hurt my foot, went to the doctor, and I asked him, I said, How many bones are there in the foot? I'd been out hunting and stepped off of a cliff and hurt my foot. And he says, 27 bones in the foot. And I said, well, I think I hurt all 27 of them. He said, no, you only hurt one. That was all. Well, you see, one member suffers, they all suffered. The whole foot, you know, felt bad. Now, may I say to you that the body is many members. I was in... Atlanta, Georgia, I spoke at a baccalaureate of a prep school there, and afterward went out to a doctor's home for dinner, and he said to me, did you know what was the most important part of your body today when you were talking? Well, I said, imagine my tongue. Oh, no, he said, that's not it at all. He says that the most important part of your body today was a member of your body that no one was conscious of. It was your big toe. He says, that big toe helped you up. He said, if you didn't have a couple of big toes, you wouldn't have been able to stand up there at all. And you know, I've thought about that a great deal. Suppose that my big toe, when I go to preach somewhere, should rebel and say, now look. And if I come out with a placard and carry it out, I refuse to go. And say, I've been going with you for years And you've never called attention to me, your tongue, and the rest of your body, your face. Everybody sees, but they don't ever see me. And why don't you take off your shoe and sock and let them get a good look at me sometime? Suppose I did that. By the way, would you like to see my big toe? Well, may I say to you, it's not very attractive at all. It's very unattractive. But it's very important. Now, there are many members in the body of Christ And some of them you don't see. The most important members of churches I've served have been men and women that the church knew nothing about. It wasn't the officers, the Sunday school teachers, or the soloists, or the preacher. It just happened to be some unknown one, one who prayed, one who had faith, I mentioned a moment ago. Those are the folk that really today are doing it. Now, how do you get into the body of believers, by the way? Listen to this, verse 13. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Now, what kind of baptism is this? Baptism of the Holy Spirit, you see. It's the Holy Spirit that puts us in the body of believers, gives us a gift as a particular member, and where to function is that. Maybe a big toe, you see. And it's whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Now, if the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? You have a gift to function, and you should function. And if the ear shall say, because I'm not the eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? 
If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? And suppose it was all tongue. My friend, even granting today, which I'm not willing to do, but granting that the tongue's movement is for today, everybody wouldn't speak in tongues. The analogy is our body. Now, our body's not all tongue. Well, now, I think I've met a few people that you could say they were just about all tongue. But they are the exception. That's not the rule by any means. Dear lady, one time went to a tongues meeting, and the preacher thought she was interested, said to her, Madam, would you like to speak in tongues? She said, Oh, my, no, I'd like to lose about 40 feet off of the one i got now. May I say to you, granted that it was a gift, not everybody would have that gift, you see. And now he says, And now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. He's the one to be pleased, you see. And these gifts are in the body, so the body can function. I had a man one time that had a gift. He was not even an usher, but he always stood in the back. And if there's any disruption in the congregation, an usher would go down and say, for instance, to a lady that's got a baby that's crying. He might speak to her and he'd antagonize her. And I've seen ushers do that, antagonize a woman. But this man had a gift. He had a gift. He'd go down and play with the baby for a minute or two. And he said, by the way, we have a nursery here. Would you like me to take the baby down or show you where the nursery is? And I don't know what it was. She always responded. I don't care who it was. The mother would respond to that. And if there's any kind of a commotion or disturbance, he had a way of handling it. I told him one time, I said, you know, you have a rare gift, one that's needed in the church today. Now, there are different gifts. Somebody says, well, you don't mean those things are gifts. Yes. You know, to bake a cake sometime in the church is pretty important. Getting up a dinner is very important. That's a gift. Some people have that gift. And somebody said, well, I can't believe that. Well, let me tell you about one. There was a couple that had remarkable gifts, but they weren't functioning. Now, I come back to the Lordship of Jesus the Lord Jesus was not the Lord of the life of Ananias and Sapphira. And they fell down dead before Simon Peter. They couldn't exist in the church, but they had gifts. But they didn't exercise them as they should. Now, you can exercise it in the will of God. There was a woman by the name of Dorcas. She died. And Simon Peter went down, and the widows went by. They had a regular fashion show. They wore the dresses. They said, this is what Dorcas made. And you know the reason they were wearing the dresses? That's all those poor widows had to wear. Dorcas was pretty important in the early church. And Simon Peter raised her from the dead. She wasn't struck dead. She was raised from the dead because she had a gift. And that gift was very important. And God didn't raise Simon Peter from the dead, and yet he was the great preacher on the day of Pentecost. My friend, it's the Spirit of God who's sovereign in this, and he's to determine what's important and what's not important. Now, if God's called you to bake a cake or to sow, and Dorcas, you know, just sowed. What a gift. But that's a gift of the Holy Spirit, and she used it. But now are they many members, yet but one body? And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. I need you. That's the reason that I appeal on the radio, and I don't receive a salary, so I feel free to appeal. I say, you are the feet of the radio minister. I'm just the mouth of it. 
And I got to have feet. If the radio is to walk out and to go out to the ends of the earth, we need to work together. I need you. You need me. At least I hope you do. Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. (laughs) Sowing? You mean to tell me that's a gift? Yes, it is. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable upon these, we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. And you know that in members of the body today, you see a little young dried-up boy taking exercise, lifting weights, trying to get muscles, you see, trying to develop that. Now, God pays attention in the body of believers to these small gifts that need to be developed. And there are many gifts that need to be developed today. We always, here in the Los Angeles area, ask for volunteer help here at the radio. Why, there's some people that are good typists. I'm no good at that. I use the hunt and peck system. And they come out and they help. And there's so many ways that we can help each other. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. And therefore, if you feel today that, well, I'm not doing anything for the Lord, the most thrilling thing in the world, especially if you're a young person, oh, what a thrilling thing it is. What an experience, what an adventure to find out what God wants you to do and where to go. Now, he goes on to say that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, you're the body of Christ, and your members in particular, and God has set some in the church. Now, here's another list that we have here. There are some in the church, apostles, prophets. Now, those have disappeared. Thirdly, teachers. After that, miracles, gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Now, some of those gifts have disappeared. They're not in the church today. They're not needed. But what about that word of helps? Oh, my friend, are you helping today in getting the word of God out? That's the thing, a gift of helps. And I thank God for the number of people today that have that gift and are exercising it. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of a miracle? In Paul's day, no, they were not all that. They were not all speaking in tongues. Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? And the answer is, no, they don't. Do all interpret, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Now, covet earnestly the best gifts. The Holy Spirit's sovereign, but I think you and I have a right to go and ask God for the gift that we want, and the best gifts. And I never shall forget, I wasn't brought up in a Christian home, never had any training at all, went away to seminary, didn't even know the books of the Bible. And then I heard Dr. Harry Ironside, and I was approaching it in college from the philosophical standpoint. Oh, I wanted to be one of the intelligentsia and give the philosophical answers. 
Then I heard Dr. Ironside explain the Scripture in a simple manner. And I went to God and I said, Lord, I want to be that kind of a preacher. I just want to teach your word and be satisfied with that. And you know, he has heard and answered my prayer in a limited way. I'm sure no Dr. Ironside, but my friend, how I thrill today at the experience and the privilege of teaching the Word of God. And when Dr. Chafer asked me back to Dallas to take his lectures, I just hung up the telephone almost rudely, dropped to my knees, and I said, Oh, God, you have answered my prayers. May I say to you, I know from experience, and that's the reason I say it, you can covet earnestly the best gifts. Oh, my friend, today, I don't mean to be ugly, but don't run off on this tangent thinking if you're speaking in tongues, you're some super-duper somebody. You're not. None of us have anything. We're nothing. May I say to you, covet earnestly the best gifts. Now, we come to this very marvelous 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and it is in this section of the endowment of gifts. And actually, the thing that called it forth was that Paul had said in the last verse of chapter 12, verse 31, he says, "...but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way." Now, we ought to covet the best gifts. I think that we have a right to do that. And I do want to say it again, because I had to say it in such a limited time last time, I had heard Dr. Ironside, and I had graduated from a college where the emphasis was put on the intellectual and the philosophical, and I was trying to be that kind of a preacher. And I wanted to, you know, to preach way up high. And then I heard Dr. Ironside make the statement, put the cookies on the bottom shelf so the kiddies can get them. And then the Lord had said, feed my sheep. He didn't say, feed my giraffes. So I asked the Lord, I said, let me teach like he teaches. And then when Dr. Ironside passed on, I had substituted for him at the Dallas Seminary. And then when he passed on, Dr. Chafer called me and said, would you take his lectures here at the seminary? And I almost rudely just hung up the phone. I couldn't answer very clearly. I just dropped on my knees, and I must confess, I wept. I thank God. I said, Lord, I prayed that you'd let me teach like he teaches, and at least my teacher thinks maybe I do, and I thank you for that. And may I say to you, I think you have a right to ask God for the best gifts. And I don't know about you, and I want to say this kindly. There's several people who have written, says, we certainly hope you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, well, for your information, I have received it, not as an experience or something I got after I say, but the Holy Spirit put me in the body of believers, and that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then they said, we hope you'll speak in tongues, and I just hope I can speak in the English language a little better. That's the thing I'm interested in. And for that reason, may I say to you that the gift that God gives is for the profit, the wealth of the church, that be helpful. Now, he says, though, regardless of the gift, there's a way that the gift should be exercised, and that's important. That's all important. Henry Drummond, years ago, wrote a very brilliant essay entitled, The Greatest Thing in All the World. It was a book put in my hands very early, 
after I became a Christian. And that little book is a great little book. It's on the 13th of 1 Corinthians. Now, many attempted to give an exposition of what is properly labeled here, the love chapter of the Bible. And may I say that I do not think that I've preached on it only once or twice in my ministry. I teach it when I come to it like this, but very candidly, some passages just pass beyond my comprehension and capability. This is one of them. John 3.16 is another. Now, the word here should be love, not charity. Wycliffe and the Vulgate made it charity, and that's been followed ever since. But the proper word is love. It's agapo. And you do not have actually a definition of love here. And if you try to define it, you come to a very serious violation of this chapter. A definition, I think, sometimes is destruction. You try to define a rose, by the way, and try to read the description of a rose that botany gives you. Well, I want to say to you that they don't tell me what a rose is like I know a rose to be. Have you ever had anyone to tell you about the glory of a sunset? May I say to you, one evening down in the Virgin Islands, I was on the deck of a little boat, the shellback, and I saw the moon come up. Oh, I want to tell you, I can't describe it to you. I wish I could. Oh, it just thrills you. It just makes goose pimples come up all over you. Now, you have a display of love here, not a definition. And we do have to deal with the mechanics of the chapter. We'd understand it. And I want to commit now an unpardonable sin. Here is a division, and that is devastation. But let me say that there are three words in the Greek that are translated by our one word, love. There is the word eros. That is the word of passion, a word used for lust. It's used of Aphrodite and eros, and as we know it, Venus and Cupid. It speaks of that which has to do with sex. In fact, that would be our word for it today. It does not occur in the New Testament at all. And then there's the word phileo. That means affection. We find it in the word Philadelphia. We find it in philanthropos, love of man, love of brother here in Philadelphia. Human love at its highest. It's a noble thing. And the word agapao, that means love at its very highest. And I think, actually, that in the Scripture, in the New Testament, it speaks of divine love. And love's not in the motions, but actually in the will. Love picks the object, and it's a definition of God, and it is spiritual. Now, let me give an outline of this chapter. And again, this is a violation of this tremendous word, but... We have to do it some way. In the first three verses, we have the preeminence of love. Verses 4 to 7, we have the prerogatives of love. In verses 8 through 13, the permanence of love. Or, we have the perpetuity of love. Or, let me give another division. You have the value of love, the virtue of love, and the victory of love. Because back in chapter 12, it was the endowment of gifts. Now we have the energy of gifts. They are to be exercised in love. Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Now, that angels means eloquence, I'm sure. I never heard an angel speak. 
I think Paul did, but I never did. But I would think it would be very eloquent. And I have not love. I'm become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. I'm nothing in the world but a noisy bell. And this is the act of the emotions, you see, of the heart here. Language without love is noise without melody, is the way Dr. Scroggy put it. Or, as McGee puts it, chatter without charity, sound without soul. You can sing like a seraph, and without love it's nothing in the world but the hiss of hell. Love is what gives meaning and depth and reality and makes it meaningful. Now notice verse 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy, and I understand all mysteries, all knowledge, though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I'm nothing. Now this is an act of the intellect. First, verse 1, the heart. Now here it is of the mind. This is the sad plight today of fundamentalism. We have busy bee organizations and a lack of love. How tragic it is to see that today in fundamental circles. Many of our so-called conservative churches fill with gossip, fill with bitterness and hatred. How terrible. And nothing in the world but the hiss of hell, may I say, when love doesn't enter into it. Now we see the third thing here. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor... Though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Now, here's an act of the volition, the will. Verse 1, the heart. Verse 2, the mind. Verse 3, the will. Love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. We're told to covet earnestly the best gifts, but they're to be exercised in love, and only the Spirit of God can do that. Here is the way that you can look at it. Right on the blackboard... A whole list of zeros. Number one of zero is eloquence. Number two, prophecy. Number three, understanding. Number four, knowledge. Number five, faith. Number six, giving. Number seven, sacrifice. That's just a bunch of zeros. Now, they are nothing. One zero and seven zeros, they're nothing. But you put a one up in front there to the left, and every zero amounts to something now. You see, when you put love with it, and love is an act of the will, my friend, and that's the important thing to know. Here you see the preeminence of love. Now we are given the prerogatives of love, beginning at verse 4. Love suffereth long, and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Well, love suffereth long, that is, it's patient. And love is kind. Love is impossible without kindness. Love without kindness is like springtime without flowers, fire without heat. Remember that Paul said in Ephesians, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake forgiven you. That's Ephesians 4.32. That's the positive side. And now will you notice the negative side here? And I move down to that, and he says, Love doth not behave itself unseemly. It seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, 
endureth all things. Now look at that, envieth not. It's content with its lot. You know, life is filled today with inequalities. And love recognizes that and is satisfied with its lot in life. This man may be a rich man. I find so many Christians like this. Why did God bless that man with so much wealth and didn't give me anything? Well, love recognizes that there are these inequalities and satisfied with its lot. Envy, well, the first murder was actually a murder caused by envy. Cain killed his brother. He was envious of it. And that, by the way, is the great sin of the ministry today. And let me come back to the other. Love recognizes that there are these inequalities, and I should have given you an example of John the Baptist. He said of the Lord Jesus, He must increase, I must decrease. And this matter of envy, Bacon says it's a vile affection, and it's most depraved of anything. You have an example of a man who loved another man, didn't envy him, and that's Jonathan who did not envy David. And it vaunteth not itself. And Moffat translates that, makes no parade. It's not boastful or ostentatious. There is a vulgarity about boasting, you know. One time there's a young Methodist preacher got up in Tennessee in a conference, and he said, I want you to know that I'm not a trained minister. I'm an ignorant minister, and I'm proud of it. And the bishop, he answered him, he said, Young man, I see you've got a whole lot to be proud of. And may I say to you, it's dangerous to boast, even about ignorance. And it's not puffed up. That means it doesn't travel on air. It's not inflated. You know what it is to travel on air and have a flat tire, don't you? And there's many a flat tire among human beings that are Christians because they're puffed up. And believe me, when the air is let out, there's nothing there. And it doth not behave itself unseemly. That is, it's not peculiar. You know, said we are peculiar people, but we ought not to act peculiar. That means that we should exercise courtesy. We're not rude. We shouldn't act like strange individuals. Emily Post said that you do not exercise manners at a meal It'd be better if you put a knife to your throat. And I want to say to Emily Post, that's not very polite to put a knife to your throat at a meal. There's so much today that can be called unlovely religion. We have a lot of that. Ought not to have it. And it seeketh not its own. That is, it inquires into motives. Why am I doing something? Since I've been retired, I've examined my own heart as I never did before. You know, have you ever searched out your own motives? Why are you doing what you're doing? You're doing it because of love for Christ. That's the important thing. That's the secret of service. And it is not easily provoked. That is, doesn't have a bad temper. That's the vice of the virtuous, is being provoked. And I'm afraid it's the vice of a great many of us today. And thinketh no evil. Now, There are some Christians that can sure ladle up the dirt. They are very suggested in what they have to say. Now, will you notice here in verse 6, he says, Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Now, what brings joy to your heart, bad or good? What about it? 
It ought to be the good. You hear something about somebody that is your enemy, maybe, and something bad about them. Do you rejoice in it, or does it make you sad? Beareth all things. That means it puts up an umbrella for others. And believeth all things. Now, that doesn't mean to be credulous, but it means we're not suspicious. Now, notice, hopeth all things. Oh, the optimism of love. Endureth all things. It remains strong through testing. Now we come in verse 8 and the rest of the chapter to the permanence of love, the victory of love. Now we are told here in verse 8, love never faileth. Love never fails. That's the negative side. And when you get down to verse 13, it says here, love abides. And now abideth faith, hope, love, these three. Greatest of these is love. Love, it abides. And here's the permanence of love. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote a poem, and the title of it is, I Loved Once. And she says in that, They never loved who dreamed that they loved once. And then another line, Love looks beyond the bounds of time and space. Love takes eternity in its embrace. You see, love is deathless. It's never defeated never disillusioned, never disappointed. You see, love that is passion, that burns like a straw stack, and it's soon consumed. That's the reason a lot of divorces take place today. It wasn't really love, the kind of love that holds two hearts together. But love is eternal. It's permanent. And God's love is a permanent sort of thing, by the way. What a wonderful thing it is. Love looks beyond the bounds of time and space. Love takes eternity in its embrace. Love is deathless, never defeated, never disillusioned, never disappointed. And Christ never ceased loving you. You can't do anything to keep him from loving you. No sinner's committed an unpardonable sin. You can be in a state of unbelief, but he loves you. You can't keep him from loving. You can get him out of the rain, but you can't keep the rain from falling. And I think it's wrong to tell children, if you do that, Willie, God won't love you. I used to be in a Sunday school class of little fellas, and boy, they were a bunch of mean brats. I was the only good boy in the class. And that teacher would say to us, said, God won't love you if you boys keep acting that way. And I used to think, well, man, he sure couldn't love me very much. We did in spite of the fact how wonderful it is to know that God loves us. Now, will you notice what he says here concerning it? Love never faileth. Whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. That is, they're going to be fulfilled. Whether they be tongues, they shall cease. They're going to end. They'll stop. That's what he says. I didn't say that. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. That is, how will it vanish away? Well, science that was science when I was in college, it's out of date today. It's a new science today. You see, knowledge today, it vanishes away. It's progressive. Now, will you notice here, where we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Paul says, when I was a child, I spake as a child, understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man... I put away childish things. But now we see through a glass darkly. 
but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. A great many people say, well, I know my loved ones in heaven. You sure will. (laughs) And you say, well, what's the scripture? Well, we know for now we see through a glass darkly. You've never seen me. Many of you haven't actually seen me. Many of you, you will say, yes, I've seen you. No, you haven't. You saw a suit of clothes with a head and two hands sticking out of it. You didn't see me. And I've really never seen you because we just see through a glass darkly, then face to face. Now I know in part, and then shall I know even as also I'm known. Someone asked Dr. G. Campbell Morgan once, said, you think we'll know our loved ones in heaven? And Dr. Morgan, in his truly British manner, he answered, he said, I do not expect to be a bigger fool in heaven than I am here, and I know my loved ones here. Now, the last verse. Now abide, faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, faith, today, you see, the object of faith, All of this is going to be fulfilled, and hope will be realized and be no longer hope. It'll disappear. No need for faith. But love, that's going to abide. The greatest of these is love. And these are all great words, high words. Faith, hope, love. Now, Paul's not describing an abstract term, love. He's writing a biography of Jesus Christ. Having loved his own that were in the world, he loved them right on through to the very end. Eternal love. Christ will never cease loving you. You haven't committed the unpardonable sin. 